So um, I'm delighted that you are beginning um, a series on the book of Colossians. This is a marvelous uh, letter of Paul's. Um, it just is really remarkable. Only four chapters, but really weighty in everything it says, both about our own walk with Christ personally, but also uh, throughout the history of the church. You can really, you can see how important it has been. Colossians gives you this cosmic or global picture of what God was doing in Christ for the sake of the world. And very few other writings in the New Testament do anything even close to that. So anyway, every time I've come to be with you guys, I've thought to myself, let's, um, I wa don't want to disappoint, so I brought maps with me. Anyway, so this is going to be like an exercise in school for a moment, but let's try to establish the context of Colossians to begin with so that we can have an idea of what we're really talking about. So you can see on this first slide that I have here, this is a standard slide of the Northern Mediterranean. Um, you know, you've got the three big ones. You've got Italy, Greece, and Turkey up there on the slide. Spain would be off to the left, off the map someplace. But you can see the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, so anyway, so you can see that red box. And that is, of course, Western uh, Turkey. Or they didn't call it Turkey in the ancient world. It would be Anatolia, or they would have actually called it Asia. It was a whole set of provinces. We call it Asia Minor. Anyway, so let's zoom in on that box. And you can see now I am in Western Asia Minor or Western Turkey. So you can see Ephesus is there on the coast going into the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean. And so Colossae is going to be just to the east of Ephesus if you just follow one of those valleys. All kinds of valleys moving east-west on that side of Asia Minor or Turkey. Anyway, so I'm going to zoom now into that box so that you can actually see where this thing is located. So the red dot, of course, is Colossae. You can see it there. Um, but this is an absolutely beautiful valley which runs through this area here. There's a river that goes down to the Mediterranean. It's the uh, uh, river, and it runs all the way up until you come to a, a fork. And it's the Lycus Valley here. Absolutely spectacular, uh, this valley. Very, very wonderful place. Not only is it beautiful, but it was fertile. It is fertile today. Um, and it's just beautiful. Um, people uh, liked to live here. They really did. Um, it was a major trade route they went through here. Let me just give you a couple of windows into how cool it was to live here. Um, these people were entrepreneurs, just like anyone today would be. But the uh, Colossians and the people from Laodicea um, and the people who were around there, um, they cultivated something like uh, black wool. Can you imagine? This is just something very unique. They just did it by you know, selective breeding, and they had all of these sheep. Many of them were black. So therefore, if you really had a high-class toga and you were living in the city of Rome, it probably came from here. Uh, the other thing that they invented in this valley, and it was at uh, Laodicea, um, it was uh, compounding medicines. This is kind of radical, but in the ancient world, um, they basically thought that there was a one-to-one -one connection. You eat something of that root, and it will cure this problem. Eat that plant, grind up this plant, smoke that plant, whatever. Then it fixes that problem. Anyway, the concept that you would actually take multiple elements, these three plants and some minerals, make them, suddenly you've made a compound drug. See how that works? Everything you do today is a compound. Anyway, so that's where it came from, right here. They were inventing, working on that stuff. That is the home of this thing. Uh, they also actually worked up eye surgery here. <laughs> I wouldn't, I've seen instruments in museums that they use for eye surgery. You don't want that. 
Anyway, no anesthesia and a very blunt knife. Okay, well, that's fine for your cataracts. You might lose your whole eyeball. Anyway, so this is, uh, this is Colossae was the smaller of the, uh, of the three cities that were right there. But I also, um, when I was there, I took this picture. Take a look. This is the, uh, the mound or the tell of Colossae. Um, it is not excavated. So here's your next Indiana Jones movie sitting right here. Um, but it's, you can tell when you walk up to it, you can just drive, park your car there and just walk up to the tell. Nobody is there. And you get up and you can tell you're on an artificial tell. So it has layers of civilization inside. It was a walled city. So you can go in. And when you're walking up on the top, you can see that there is what we call surface debris on the top. That means you're walking around and you're saying, hmm, this does not look like an ordinary field because you can see things like broken pottery. And whenever they cut stone to make buildings, you can see broken stone, which has been cut. So you can see these large pieces of stone on the top which is really, so you, you can tell, this thing is ready to be excavated. Um, here's the next slide. Let me show you this. Um, up on the top, um, like every good Roman city, they would have had um, a theater. So this is actually the theater of Colossae. It doesn't look like anything to you uh, and to me. You walk around inside, but can you see how it's kind of going up a little bit on the sides? Yeah, this whole theater is full of dirt and debris is what it is. It's never been emptied. Um, the city, this area of Turkey actually has a lot of earthquakes. Do you remember a year ago that there was in southwest uh, Turkey, a terrible earthquake um, in Antikia? Do you, do you remember that? Anyway, it's not far from this. Anyway, the Romans and Greeks built these buildings out of stone and they were so rigid in an earthquake zone. <laughs> well, they, it's the only building material they had. Colossae fell down. And uh, they decided they were the smaller town and everybody just left. And in AD 67, the site was abandoned. So this thing is frozen in time. But I thought I would show you a picture of its neighbor, Laodicea. There's the theater in Colossae. Now look at this. That's what's underground. So it would just take a lot of effort to dig this thing out. Um, here's an aerial shot of um, Laodicea. And you can see how beautiful that is. So Colossae had something like this but we just have never seen it. Well, that's to be expected, I guess, but um, there it is. One thing I really like about uh, the Colossians, though, Colossae, is that, here, the next slide I'll show you, they, they left us this really nice sign so that if you're ever lost and you're driving around over there, you can see this sign that says, welcome to Colossae. Okay, good. Then you know where to pull off and climb the hill. Anyway, just kidding. That was by the Turkish Tourists Organization. But anyway. Anyway, so Colossians is a marvelous letter that actually raises for us some of the greatest issues, I think, that are inside of the Christian church. All right, so let's do this. Let's try to follow Paul's thoughts after him um, in Colossians. So how would you open a letter like Colossians? Last week, Torin uh, talked about the opening, the very opening, where he gives you thanksgiving for the Colossians. This is a formal and appropriate thing to do for any educated Roman. When you write a letter to somebody, there are protocols. And this is how you start. You start with a thanksgiving. Uh, then the second thing you do is you express a prayer for the well-being of the people who are reading your letter. So thanksgiving and a prayer. Standard thing. Everybody learned this in school. That is the way you follow protocols. It's much like we have these kind of letter protocols that go on inside of our society as well. Um, 
I think about this occasionally with students, you know, that who write to me. They send me an email, and uh, occasionally they really slip up. I mean, they... Do you know when we're not around as faculty members, they, do you remember this? F- students will call us by our last names when we're not around. Like, do you have Burge at 11 o'clock? That kind of thing, right? So anyway, um, so occasionally they'll slip up and they'll send me an email to say, hey, Burge. I'm like, really? No, 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 you don't do that. You say Professor Burge, Dr. Burge, whatever. But I've tried to train them to say, you should do like Paul, dear Dr. Burge. I am so thankful that God has brought you... <laughs> to West Michigan, and that he has graced you with so many wonderful ideas that you bring to class. I am praying that God will prosper your life and that of your children and that that kind of thing. I would like to have an extension on my paper. (laughs) Now, I tell them, you start with a Thanksgiving and a prayer, you might get the extension. No Thanksgiving, no prayer, forget the extension. It's just not going to happen. Okay, so this is typical, and what we are going, our assignment today is to look at verses 9 through 14. So last Sunday we had 1 through 8 and 9 through 14 today. So if you have a New Testament, you might want to look at it. Uh, we'll be using the NIV today. All right, so what is the great question? What is the grand question which Colossians is raising for us? What is Paul talking about? And let me kind of back into this uh, just kind of in a sideways The question is raising is, what kind of person have you always wanted to be? Do you ever think about something like that? Do you ever imagine your life and you say, I would would like to be this person instead of that person? Um, In the ancient world, you went to school, if you were Greek time or Roman period, to become a good citizen. It wasn't to sort of get you a trade The idea was that you would cultivate character. That's what classical education was all about. You would actually cultivate character and so that you would become a different kind of person. That's what schooling did. So in our society, we instead think about schooling as we're thinking, well, what kind of job do I want? But that's not the world of Paul. So Colossians initially raises for us this interesting question. Do you ever think about the kinds of person, the kind of person that you would like to be? Or do you think like a friend of mine does? Um, He says, basically, what you see is what you get. I am how I am, so deal with it. That's what he says to me, actually. Or have you ever said, "Mm, well, no, I don't want to be the person I'm evolving into, but I want to be somebody else. Let me give you an example. If you might say to yourself, I want to be known as a generous person. Do you want to be known as a generous person? Yeah, sure. I want to be known as that. So therefore, you say to yourself, I am going to set a target so that I begin doing generous things. And therefore, I cultivate inside of my life generosity. And then I am known as a generous person. I have a target. I take aim at the target, and I make different choices. I now am going to be the person who picks up the tab. I'm the one who goes the extra mile for my friends. I'm the one who, with his grandchildren, when splitting up the bar of chocolate, takes the smaller piece. Oh, my gosh. Anyway... If you did that, if you said, I'm going to become a generous person, you have created a target. And that target is what this old-fashioned word is a virtue. That's the word I want you to come away with. In other words, you have said, I'm going to create a virtue in my life. It is going to be a valued part of my character. 
So Colossians 1, 9 through 14 asks, do you have any targets? Do you have any virtues that you are pursuing that you want to build into your life? When you think about your life, do you say, I'd like to add this? Or do you say to yourself, I give up. (laughs) I am what I am. Or maybe you say to yourself, I'm already perfect. I don't need to have any targets. That's hilarious, right? So, hmm. Um, A couple uh, of weeks ago, um, I decided to uh, think about some fun things to do. We have grandkids here and all that. So um, I always wanted to do this. It's a thing in West Michigan. The Muskegon River, you know, goes through West Michigan. And you can go rafting down the Muskegon River. Huh? Right? So I thought, you know, the company kind of puts you in here and picks you up down here. I thought that would be kind of cool, right? So anyway, so I was going online and I looked at all of these rafting Muskegon River companies. But anyway, I found one that had the coolest sentence in it. Listen to this. All are welcome to join us, but leave your river jerk friends at home. (laughs) What? Is that a thing? Are there river jerks? Do you guys know about this? Are there? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Do you know what a river jerk is? Oh, my Lord. It's something I don't know about. Am I a river jerk? Do I have river jerk friends? Is this a category? Is this a truly fallen person who doesn't belong on a river anywhere? This is a person who has no virtues, no targets. They are just awful, I guess. Anyway, I, if you're a river jerk, would you please introduce yourself after church? I want to take a good look at you. Anyway, it's about whether or not you have character, whether or not you have virtues. Have you cultivated that inside of your life, or have you given up? One of my favorite films is um, about 12 years, 10 years old. If you haven't seen it, it's great. It's called The Help. Um, Do you remember Viola Davis? It's about African-American women who worked in mid-20th century homes in the South and how they were treated and how they fared. You, you, you know this film? Anyway, it is such a great film. If you have not seen it or heard of it, the help. You need to go find this film. Anyway, uh, Viola Davis is one of these women who is serving inside of one of these homes. And it's a great story about her life. But above all, she has this relationship with this four or five-year-old little girl, this small white girl who's inside of the family. And she says to this child... Every time she sees her, you guys remember the list? You are smart, you are kind, and you are important. Have you heard this list before? It comes from the help from Viola Davis. That's where it is. And what you see inside of this is that this woman, Viola Davis, is actually building character into this four-year-old. And this is how the child is to grow up. In other words, Viola Davis is planting seeds of virtue, of goodness inside of that child. So therefore, the child grows and they begin to understand, yes, I am gifted, I'm smart, I'm okay, I want to be a kind, I am a kind person, and I'm important. So back to Colossians, the question is this, do you think about your life and say, I want to be like this, and therefore I'm going to build some targets into my life. Now, the scriptures give us a little bit of guidance about this. You might say to yourself, for instance, I want to be wise. 
So here I have on the screen Proverbs chapter 1, 1 through 7. Here is an intellectual target, okay? Take a look at this. The wise gain wisdom and instruction for understanding and insight. They receive instruction in prudent behavior, learning what is right and just and fair. They listen and add to their learning, and thus they gain discernment and guidance. They seek to understand proverbs and parables as well as the sayings and riddles of the wise. They fear the Lord because this is the beginning of knowledge. Hmm. Because fools, no, there it is. That's a river jerk right there. Because river jerks despise wisdom and all instruction. Amen? That's a river jerk. Anyway, so you can be wise. That would be one thing. And you say to yourself, that's how I cultivate this. I'm going to be someone who receives instruction, especially from God's word. Here is another target that someone might set for themselves. Here's a spiritual target. You may say to yourself, I want to be well-rooted. I want to be spiritually well-rooted. So here is Psalm chapter one. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the company of mockers. What are those three describing? It's a river jerk, of course. That must be, I don't know. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord. They meditate on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. This is a person who is grounded, This is a person who is mature. This is a person whose heart is filled with the scripture and who really does love the Lord. As you look at these, do you not say to yourself, I like that. I would like to be known as that kind of person. That's what it means to live a life with a target. I would like to evolve into that person so I can be exactly what I've always wanted to be. Thirdly, here's another one. Here's a moral list of some kind. This comes out of Paul in Galatians 5, verse 22. Here Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things There is no law. Now, when you look at a list like this, would you not like some of these features to be a natural part of your own life? Yeah? No? Yes? Of course you would. I would. You want these things. You admire these things. And you say to yourself, can I, do I have these things? And how might I develop it? That's what it means to be a person who is cultivating their character. Okay. Well, in the ancient world, when you go to school, like Paul went to school, you would have actually memorized lists like this. So here, for instance, I'm putting up on the screen, um, Greek virtue. Now, here are some character traits which the Greeks would have told all children who are going to school. This is how you become a mature adult. These are the kinds of characteristics that you want if you're going to be living in Athens or Corinth or something. They had moral virtues. You could have courage, patience, and self-control. These are very well known. Social virtues, generosity, honesty, and justice. Do you want to be known as an honest person? Yeah. Intellectual virtues like wisdom and prudence. Prudence means knowing when to speak and knowing when not to speak. Knowing when to act and when not to act. 
Paul undoubtedly learned these things. And all of those people who were literate and early and growing in the ancient world, they knew these things. These were Greek virtues. I look at that list and I think, yeah, I would like to have some of that for sure. Here's what the Romans taught. They had another way that they organized this, but it really is an echo of the Greeks. So take a look at this. They had personal virtues. They had social virtues. Personal virtues. Self-control. Mm-hmm. Who wants self-control in here? All in favor say aye. Who doesn't want self-control? We'll find out who the river jerks are. None. Good. Truthfulness. Do you want to be known as a truthful? I had this amazing moment with one of my grandkids one time about this. this it just was an interesting moment where, you know when you're with a four and a five-year-old in that age range, three, four, five, um, it's every little kid decides to steal something and lie about it. <laughs> That's just the way it is, is it not? And it's sometimes, you know, the classic thing is, they took a cookie and you said, where did you take that cookie? No, I didn't take a cookie, all that kind of stuff. Anyway. anyway, it was a moment in our kitchen where I had this conversation with one of my grandkids. It's a classic situation. And I said, I don't remember what it was about. Did you take the cookie? And they said, no. I said, no, you did. You got the crumbs all over your mouth. <laughs> And we, I said to him, this is not about the cookie. This is about becoming a truthful person. So that whatever you say is true. And we know it's true because you believe in truth. That is what I mean by a character, a virtue. Dedication. You're dedicated. You're all in when you commit. Social values. You're an honest person. You are a reliable person. We can count on you. You are fair. And you believe in justice. This is a target-rich environment. Would you not want these to be named with your name? Yes, yeah, I would. I would want these named. Just pick one of these and say to yourself, am I known as this? And then you say, in your inner heart, you say, I am going to cultivate this. I want this. I want this for my children. I want this for myself. I want this for my entire world. So when we open Colossians, what we find is Paul presupposing all of this kind of language. Are you the person who has given up? Or are you the person who is actually growing into grand maturity? What kind of a person are you? All right. That brings us to Colossians 1.9. You can see it here up on the screen. Now, this is quite a paragraph. Um, I gave it to you this way because this is, it's a tough one. Uh, this is one sentence in Greek. If I want to give a heart attack to my advanced Greek students and I want to put this on the final, if I want to torture them, here's what you put on their final exam. You just put it on their cold and say, just translate this, see if you can do. It's hard but I'm going to break it down for you. For this reason, Paul writes, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, 
growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness and sins, period. Wow, that is one run-on sentence. But in Greek, it's totally okay. That's the way people would actually write if they were well-educated and they were writing formally. Okay, so what is it that Paul is doing here? Paul is praying for the Colossians and he wants to pray that inside of their lives, God would give them these amazing virtues. That is what he is hoping for. So he begins by saying, ever since we heard, here we can take a look look at this, ever since we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. That's the first thing he says, and that is where I have got to pause. Paul did not found this church. We learned that in the first six verses of Colossians. Somebody else, Epaphras, is somebody who went and started the church of Colossae. So Paul is praying for a church that he has never met. He only hears about these people by reputation. But he says he regularly, ongoingly, prays for virtues to arise in their lives. Now, if you were a Jew, like Paul, um, you would have this kind of a discipline inside of your life. You would pray every morning when you woke up, that was the first thing, to set the course of your day, and then you would pray every evening as you went to bed before you went to sleep. That is how you bookended your life. Your prayer would always begin with the great confession of Israel from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. That is the great prayer, which is in Deuteronomy 6, that every Jew would use. If you were really faithful, you would pray in the middle of the day because the temple actually had a sacrifice in the middle of the day, and you remembered that. You prayed facing Jerusalem. That was Paul's routine. So therefore, Paul says initially, he prays for the Colossians with discipline. It's, this is where I have to pause and I ask myself, do I pray for anybody like that? Do I pray deep virtue into people's lives? Let me illustrate it for you like this. When our first child was born, our daughter, our oldest daughter, um, I remember so well my wife saying, you know what? We want this baby to grow into a person in whom there is goodness and wonder and generosity and truth. And so therefore my wife and I, when she was in this crib, we would at night when she was asleep, kind of sneak into the nursery room and we would pray over the crib. When You know, there's nothing more wonderful. When you have a three- and four-year-old, they're like little angels when they're asleep at four years old, five years old. They're angels. So anyway, it is an amazing thing to walk into their room while they're asleep as parents 
and pray over your child that God will cultivate inside of them these God-given virtues. That's a discipline. So I read this and I ask myself, is there anybody in your life that you are praying for like that? Is there anybody in your life, do you have a friend or a parent or do you have a child that you are praying daily for that God would cultivate inside of them this kind of character? Um, A year ago, I told you about this, but I'm just going to remind you twice this morning about what I told you a year ago. Um, In the spring of 2022, my mom died. You remember, I, I mentioned that last year. And so therefore, one of the things that I just felt that was so critical is not only praying for your young children, but praying for your parents. And it was it was just amazing. There was, a, there was a time where I knew, or the hospice nurse told me, my mom would never leave the bed she was in. And so when I was with her, I just thought, I, I, I asked her permission, if I, can I pray very specifically about your dying? Other people in my family in the room, they did not want to talk about language like that. Nobody wants to talk about death. But my mom said, yes. I will pray for your courage and your faithfulness. And every time we were together, we prayed. Because we both knew mom was going to die. In fact, one time I just asked the Lord, and I told you this a year ago. I said, you know, what do I pray? It's got to be more than that. And I just never have this experience very often, but God gave me this one prayer and I repeated it. Lord Jesus Christ, Give mom the gentle gift of meeting you in her sleep. And every time I was with her, I prayed that out loud. And my mom loved that prayer. Every time I was done, she would say, amen. I wasn't there when she died. My sister was. But she died in her sleep. And just one morning, she was gone. Simple as that. So here we have an opportunity If we have a child or a parent or a friend, do we pray like this? All right, so what is Paul praying? All right, here's the great ask for Paul, okay? Here's what I'm asking for, that God will fill you. What? With what? With knowledge of his will, with all wisdom in the spirit, and with understanding. Knowledge and wisdom and understanding. These are right out of the Roman and Greek playbooks. Except in this case, this is wisdom and knowledge and understanding that comes from God himself. Now, when you read this, that you would be filled with knowledge of God's will, we often take this personally and say, I want to know God's will for my life. But that's not what Paul's talking about here at all. That you would understand God's great purposes for the world that you would understand the great truths about who God is, that you would require from your deep reading of the scriptures an instinct for what God wants to accomplish. And then there is wisdom and understanding given by the Holy Spirit that comes along with that. This is spiritual maturity. That's what you have here, spiritual maturity, insight, intuition given by God so that you understand the deeper meaning of what's happening. Let me illustrate it like this for you. This is the way somebody in the Greek world would have illustrated it, but it works today. I've heard it. Um, Imagine this. 
Have you ever heard someone play the piano and it's almost as if you know they took a lot of lessons? They're kind of playing the song perfectly. Got it? And then have you ever heard someone play the piano? They may not even read music, but they just walk up to the keyboard and it was like, suddenly the music is coming out of the very center of who they are. Have you seen that before? It's amazing. What is the difference between these two? That's what this list says. You can have understanding about piano and music and notes and paper and all of that kind of thing, but it's another thing. If you have an insider's understanding, a gift from God that gives you that capacity. Somebody else said it to me this way. You know, in all of the theology classes we teach at the seminary, it's possible for me to imagine a student who knows incredible amount about the Bible, who has studied all of the right Christian doctrines, but has no instinct for what is good and true and what is right. In other words, I can put them on a test. I can present them with something they've never seen, and they don't know what to do with it. This is what Paul is trying to describe. It's having this kind of inner understanding. I had a medical student uh, once put it to me this way, and I think this is a great illustration. They said, it's the difference between, if you're going to be a doctor, you have to know the anatomy of the body. You've got to know where all the bones are. You've got to know the names of the muscles. All right, I get that. And then secondly, you have got to know how everything sort of works, how it functions, how a joint works and all that. And then thirdly, if you're going to diagnose disease, you have got to know how the ideal system works all together cooperating. You see the word understanding here in Greek actually is the word synesis. It's where the word synthesis comes from. So therefore, how the whole works. Mm, let me give you an example. I've never t- I don't think I've told you guys this, but I used to race bikes, bicycles. Yes, bike racing. Anyway, it was a great, it was so much fun until I had a massive crash. And I just went straight over the handlebars at a pretty good clip. And the only thing in my mind was save the bike, save the bike, save the bike. So I landed on my hands and I broke. These in here, I broke things. And I, all my fingers went flat back. It was awful, really awful. Anyway, everything was, the recovery was okay, except for this finger here. And this joint is really screwed up. I must have like all the way back. So anyway, it hurt a lot. And I just said, I've got to go. I, I told my doctor, I said, I, I think I got to fix this. And he said, it's surgery. So two years ago, I had surgery on this finger. <laughs> so I met the surgeon, we talked it through, and he said, yeah, good, we can do this. And he said, okay, good. And then I came in for my surgery outpatient, and I was laying on this table, and he said, do you want us to put the screen up so you can't see? And I said, no, are you kidding? I'm watching. <laughs> so out goes the screen. So anyway, and he's looking at me like, the nurse is kind of like, this guy's going to pa- pass out. Is this going to gross you if I tell you this? No. Okay. So anyway, so he makes this huge this incision, and then he lays open your whole knuckle. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, whoa, that is so cool. And so I'm just quizzing him. I'm going, what's that? What's that? What is that thing? And what does it do? He was having so much fun. It was like, yeah, and he named all this stuff. And I'm thinking, I'm so glad my surgeon knows the anatomy of my finger. He knows all this little stuff, you know? And then he said, well, do you want to know how your finger actually works? I go, yeah. And he says, I know it's numb, but just go ahead and start doing this. And I did. And he pulled back the skin some more. And I was looking at all these Jones and the ligaments, and it was like a puppet thing. It was so cool. I said, that's neat. That really is. 
And I said, okay, so what's wrong? And he sort of sat back and he said, something's wrong here. And that's when I learned, as through him, surgery is part art. I have to untangle that joint and figure out where a nerve is jammed up inside there. And that's what he did. And I thought to myself, ah, that is the Greek levels. That's it. You've got to know the anatomy. You've got to know how it works together. But you have to have that synthesis, that understanding of how everything operates together. That's it. So Paul is asking that we would have that kind of knowledge and wisdom and understanding that is coming from the Lord. Now, why is it that he wants this? Um, this is about maturity, to be sure. It's about really growing spiritually wise. But this is what you're going to see in Colossians as we go forward. The Colossian church has people in it who are teaching crazy things. That's the problem of Colossians. You're going to see it at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. There are people in the Colossian church teaching crazy things. Someday in your life, you are going to encounter someone, as I have many times, who are going to say to you, the Lord has given me this insight that is not in the scriptures, but I know it's true, and this is the way we ought to believe and think. You are going to encounter someone like that someday, and so therefore what Paul is actually anticipating is, who is going to be able to counter that problem? They had better know the scriptures, but above all, they had better have a spirit-inspired instinct for how the truth works together. That's synthesis here. All right, so Paul is actually moving toward another kind of goal. So he knows he wants these three things so that, here now we can see in the next slide, so that, and here I've made you an outline to make sense for you. The reason I'm praying these things into your life, these virtues, is so that you will live a life Actually, he says in Greek, so that you will walk a walk. That's the way Hebrews would write. So that you will live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, strengthened in all power through his glorious might, giving you endurance and patience. This is Paul's dream for the Colossians, that each of us would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is living a life that honors God. This is a life that pleases and delights Jesus. And so therefore, Paul is saying to the Colossians, I'm praying this for you. We're reading this from Paul, and he would want us to say the very same thing. Is this your life? Are you living a life that is worthy of the Lord? Do we understand that whenever we move around in the world, people listen to us, and when they hear we are Christians, they evaluate Jesus by the way we live? Um, this is something I don't think I've ever told you. I don't talk about it much, but it's a little embarrassing, but hey. So a hundred years ago, I was in the Navy, um, and in Newport, Rhode Island, there is what's called Officer's Candidate School. Um, it is where all the advanced schools for the Navy are. So you can have <clears throat> dentists and lawyers, JAGs, uh, chaplains. You can have the warfighting guys all over here, sub-drivers. They're all kind of studying together in this place. It's a very big place, a lot of people there, but it's up-and-coming new officers. So I was at Officer Candidate School. We call it OCS in Newport, Rhode Island. It was a great experience for me. I was doing things I never thought I would ever do. 
Um, but there I was. And then a group of us who were also chaplain officers, we got into a conflict with some Marines who happened to be in our barracks. I'm just going to say here, the Marines were wrong and we were right. Just going to say. But anyway, it was just this whole thing that turned into this crazy thing. I mean, of course, when you meet a jarhead, you're going to have conflict. The people who laughed know exactly what that meant right there. Marines, jarheads, helmets. Anyway, so what happened was we resolved the whole thing. The Marine uh, you know, general ended up with the admiral of the base and everything. So it all got resolved finally. But then our group was ordered to meet with the admiral. Like a scene out of Top Gun, I tell you, so awful, our little group. So anyway, we had to wear our summer whites. You've seen, if you saw Top Gun, you've seen this. Um, they always show these off. White shoes, white pants, white belt, white short sleeve shirt, and then black insignia on the shoulders with my gold stripes and all that kind of stuff, okay? So anyway, we all had to go. We had to look perfect. We walked into the Admiral's office, and we all stood there. He should have been smoking a cigar, but he wasn't. That would have been perfect. But we all walked in. You had to stand at attention. You do the... And then he stands up, and he walks over to us, and he looks at our uniform. You are wearing the uniform of the United States Navy. Obviously. You are wearing the uniform of an officer. Oh, man. Now, when you're a chaplain, you have your shoulder board and you have your stripes, but then there's an insignia right here that shows what your specialty is. If you're an attorney, you know, a JAG, then you're going to have something. Anyway, we have a cross right here. So then he goes, he looks right at the shoulder board, and you are chaplains. Do I need to say more? Dismissed. I thought, holy cow. That was an awful moment. It was really embarrassing. But what this admiral was saying is, you guys represent something that you don't even realize. You are not living into the reality of who you are. Did I tell you guys that the Marines really were the bad guys in all this? They really messed up. We were innocent. But he said to us, you are not living into your uniform. You're not living into your designator. You're not. What's the matter with you? I don't care about this thing, but get out of my office. So Top Gun. So Paul makes this list and he says, all right, here, here are the virtues that Paul wants to pray into the Colossians. Do have a life pleasing to him. This is what it means, bearing fruit, growing, strengthened in all power. Do you want this kind of stuff in your own life? Isn't this the life that you've always wanted to live? This is maturing discipleship. This is about becoming holy. This is not for amateurs. This is not for visitors to the Christian space. This is for men and women who have been formed inside of the church and who are walking with Christ, but who are not living lives worthy of the Lord, who are not living into their uniform. That's it. 
So as I look at this list, I say to myself, wow, this is the kind of thing I want to cultivate. That's what I want inside of my own life. Then Paul goes to the next step, the last step. So here's the ask that God will fill you so that you will live a life worthy of the Lord. And secondly, that you will live a life filled with gratitude and joy. Those are the two things he really wants to evolve inside of the Colossian life. So he says, okay, so you will live this life of gratitude because you belong to God's inheritance, because you belong to his people. You are just like the people of the Old Testament. You are a part of God's program in the world. Because you are a holy people, you are different. You're not special. None of us are special, but we are to be different so that we become persons of virtue who live into their uniforms. You have been rescued, rescued from darkness. In other words, you and I know perfectly well our life could have turned out different than it is. Amen? Yeah, it could have. But you are here. You have been received. You belong here, not just to TLC, but you have a new citizenship. You belong with God's kingdom. So therefore, I look at this life, the two things he wants. It, will you have a life worthy of the Lord, but will you have a life filled with gratitude? Do you want to be a person who is grateful? Have these things dawned on you as they've dawned on me? It is honestly so easy to move through life and complain, to focus on what somebody else has and what you don't have, to see what opportunities you missed but somebody else got, and complain, complain, complain. Instead, Paul says, have a life of gratitude for the big things. So is that a target? Is that a target for you? I want that to be a target. Here's the last thing I want to remind you of from my mom. Um, and I told you this a year ago, but it is so important. I'm going to go back to it. It's this. One thing I always knew about my mom was that she was always really a content person. She was. She was content. And there she is. If, if you're with your, your parent, one of your parents, and they're on their deathbed. Things are not easy right there. But she was happy. She was content. She's always been. Ever since I was a kid, I remember this. And I asked her, how is it? How, how is it? You're okay. You're content. You're... And she said, I have a choice right here, right now, to dwell on the fact that your father has died. He died two years earlier. Or to be grateful for the 65 years we had together. Remember me telling you guys this? I can choose. And then she said, the zinger, this is your next tattoo. She said to me, the secret to happiness is gratitude. The secret to happiness is gratitude. So therefore, she says to me, I choose to be grateful. And therefore, flowering from that gratefulness is a life that is different and it corresponds with a life that is worthy of the Lord. So in my last slide, let me bring us back to the last question that I had for us. So what is the life you have always wanted to live? Paul opens this letter with thankfulness, and then he prays a vision of goodness over the Colossians. But what he wants to do is pray a reality into their lives of such integrity and wholeness and wonder 
that they become very different than the people who are living around them in Colossae. I've been with you guys here at TLC for a very long time, and you guys know me, so I'm going to take just a risk here if I can take a risk. Are you, am I, living a life worthy of the Lord? Are you living into your uniform? It's a fair question. It is a really fair question. And the second one falls on it. Are you living a life of gratefulness? Am I living a life of gratefulness? This is not about feeling guilt, but this is an opportunity to inspire one another to aim higher, to create targets, to become men and women of deep virtue. That's what Paul hopes for, that these become not amateur Christians, but mature followers of Jesus. He wanted that for the Colossians, I'll guarantee you. He would want that for us. Amen? Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, we ask that you would draw into our lives the courage to create targets, to aim for something higher and deeper and better. So our lives would be lived worthy of you and that our hearts would be filled with gratefulness for all you have done for us already. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.